Well, good morning, Journey Church. How's everybody doing today? I'm Pastor John. I'm the recovery pastor. It's my privilege to get to bring the message this morning. If you would, help me uh, welcome those who are joining us online. We're so glad that you are joining with us today. We are going to continue with our stories of old. Tony started us off last week with Abraham and Sarah, and kind of the point of his message was if God met our expectations all the time, he'd never get a chance to exceed them. And so today... We are going to continue on that theme, uh, but we're going to step into maybe a different character you may not have heard quite so much about, Jonathan, and I've kind of titled this message, Faithfulness Amid Unfairness. You'll know that unfairness is in quotation marks, so that may be a little foreshadowing. So let me open up with a word of prayer before I continue. Lord, I just thank you for uh, the privilege to be here today. Um, We just... uh, Offer this time up to you. Pray that all we do and say would glorify you. I pray I can get out of the way. Your Holy Spirit would come to the fore, that you will speak through my weakness, open uh, hearts and minds, that your word will not return void. Uh, We will just give you all the praise and glory for it, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So when we start talking about heroes of old, stories of old, uh, we kind of naturally migrate to uh, Hebrews chapter 11. That's called the faith hall of fame or the heroes of the faith um, and I thought it appropriate we could start off there by just reading the first little part of chapter 11 where they're all listed out it says that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we don't see this is what the ancients were commended for it's listing out all those heroes of the faith Adam to Abel to Joseph, Moses, um, you know, they all did some uh, spectacular thing that uh, God honored their faithfulness to him, kind of coming to the uh, ending with David and Samuel, which are going to be contemporaries of uh, Jonathan that we're going to talk about here in just a little bit. It says they were commended for their faith. And then we kind of get past all these heroes, and then we get to this other section at the end of chapter 11. It talks to to these folks, it says, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Anybody want to sign up for getting sodden too? These folks didn't quite get the same treatment that those heroes at the very beginning got. Most of them saw some fruits of their labor. Most of these listed in this kind of anonymous section didn't see um, the fruits of their labor in this life. Um, As we progress into chapter 12 now, it starts off with a therefore. And so when you're studying the Bible, whenever you see a Therefore, you're supposed to pay attention to what it's there for. 
I got a lot better laugh the first service, but and they weren't even awake yet. That's all good. Therefore, it's based on what we just read here in chapter 11. Considering all that, looking forward, it says, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So, given the example of all these people, these are what God is saying are the best of the best of the best. Copy their example and follow and do what they did. Dig in, study this, see what they did, and now pattern your life after it so that you can be doing likewise. And they're all examples of God's faithfulness to us and then uh, these individuals' faithfulness back to God. And that's really the theme of what the stories of old that we're going through right now is all about. It's talking about there are things that can hinder us from doing the best that we can. Those could be good things, but they're not the best things, and we need to discern that. It talks about the sin that entangles, implying that each of us has something that's going to be able to tangle us up, to trip us up, that we need to be on guard for. And then finally, that last part that I've underlined there, it says the run with perseverance, the race marked for us, which tells me that... God desires us to be faithful to our part of his sovereign plan. God has a tailored race, a unique race for each and every one of us. And I believe God grades on potential achieved versus necessarily everything that you accomplish. God gives each of us a unique set of circumstances, natural talents, and then spiritual gifting, and that to me equates to what your potential would be or what amount you can do in the name of the Lord. The uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25 kind of speaks to this. You've got one that got five bags of gold and one with two bags of gold and one with one bag of gold, and the one with five doubled, the one with two doubled. Both of those were told that, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been in charge of a few things, now you'd be in charge of many. So God looks at kind of, you've been given this much uh, potential and you're living up to this much. Somebody else who maybe was only given this much potential, but they live up to almost all of that, they're actually doing better in God's eyes than the one who may have had more and had a lot more potential there. Um, and we're talking about uh, in John 15, 8, it says the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We're talking about bearing fruit, not just necessarily things that we do that we're checking off. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit that comes out of us. And so in the midst of this, what I'm talking about, comparing yourself to somebody else is always a fool's errand. You're trying to compare yourself to something that can't be compared because nobody else has the same race that you do. Comparison is only going to lead to pride when I look at somebody and go, well, they're not really doing very good. I must be doing pretty good. And the sin of pride starts to creep in. Or I look at somebody and go, man, everybody loves Raymond. He does it such better, so much better than I do. And now I feel defeated. And I'm not going to live up to my potential anymore. And so comparison really is not what God is looking for us to do. God only knows what your potential is and how close you can be
to receiving it. The other thing I get from uh, that 11, Hebrews chapter 11, is God is just and not necessarily fair. <clears throat> fair again in quotation marks. If God was fair, I would get what I deserve. For my sin, I should be eternally separated from God. Only by God's grace, by Jesus coming and paying the penalty on the cross for my sin and me accepting that gift, can I be forgiven and reconciled back to the Father. If God was fair, he could have just left me where I was. It wasn't fair to Jesus that he had to come and suffer that for me. But he did because that's all part of God's grace. So I think when we look at this, we have a skewed definition of what fair is, especially in the West, in America. We think fair means equal. And that's really not what we're trying to talk about when we're talking about fairness. In Acts uh, 10.34, God does say he doesn't show favoritism to anybody, but that doesn't mean that things are equal. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 uh, reminds us that God is just, and he is going to make things right someday. So he is just, he's going to make it right, but that doesn't necessarily mean fairness in being equal. This is more of when Peter came to Jesus, and Jesus was talking about that eventually Peter was going to have to suffer for the, his witness for him, and tradition says Peter was crucified after Christ's resurrection, uh, Peter looks at John and he goes, well, what about that guy? And Jesus said, well, you don't worry about him, you worry about yourself. John ends up being exiled to the island of Patmos. So both disciples on the inner circle of Jesus, one suffered, uh, one exiled. Why is because that was the will of God. And it's trying to get us to a place of having a heart condition kind of like Job here. In Job 1.21, he says, Naked I came from the mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I'll admit, you know, as a young Christian, when I first read Job, I really struggled with that. He didn't do nothing wrong. Why did he have to suffer all this stuff? But then, you know, I kind of got, it assuages our offense at the end when we see that Job actually got twice from what he did at the beginning. We're like, okay, well, that was kind of worth it. That kind of more is in line with our sense of fairness, but that's not necessarily the case of what can happen. Another example of how God kind of views fairness is from the parable of the vineyard workers. Matthew 20, verse 1 through 16, I'd encourage you to go read that, but you have a farmer who hires some folks to come to his vineyard to work he offers them a day's wage. They go, they start working. He's figuring, hey, I can hire some more. He comes back kind of mid-morning, gets another crew, comes back at lunchtime, another crew. Late afternoon, hires another crew. At the end of the day, it's time to settle up and pay up. So he has the folks who started last. They come forward first, and he gives them a whole day's wage right there. And then the guys who started early in the morning are kind of going, well, this is going to be pretty cool. We're going to get a big bonus here. And the master gives him the same amount that he gave to the people that showed up at the end of the day. And like many of us, you, the upcry was, that's not fair. And the master said, what are you talking about? At the very beginning, you agreed you were going to work for a day's wage, and that's what I paid you. You got paid your wages. You shouldn't worry about these other people. That's between me and them. 
what's it to you if I want to be generous and pay them more? And the illustration is folks that come to a saving knowledge of Christ at the end of their life receive the same benefit that those who were saved young in life and lived for the Lord their entire life in that they get to spend eternity with God in heaven. That is that mystery of God, the grace that he has, which we look at that and say that's not fair, but in his eyes, you're right, it's not, but it's my grace. And so that's all part of where we're trying to get to what God is trying to do with us in our hearts. So as we kind of transition here now to the, the individual that we're trying to study, his name is not listed in Hebrews 11, but I would say He's kind of one of those anonymous ones that you would find at the end there that is described uh, towards the end of Hebrews 11. Um, this discussion now, it kind of, I'd encourage you to go and read 1 Samuel. It's, it's a pretty cool book. Um, no epic adventure you watch on whatever streaming service is going to hold a candle to the intrigue and adventure and uh, battle and court uh, drama that is going on throughout this book. Um, but Jonathan's story is told, 1 Samuel 13 through 31. Um, in the interest of time today, I can't read you all of the details, so you're going to have to uh, put up with the John Pierce newfangled paraphrase um, as I kind of walk you through a quick survey, kind of a little bit of what um, was occurring in 1 Samuel, since many of you may not know a whole lot about Jonathan. Um, where the nation of Israel is at this time, they're in a transition period. They're transitioning from a theocracy where God ruled directly through one person over that, the nation of Israel, and they were the judge, they were the civil, and they were the military authority. Um, we're transitioning now to a monarchy where you're going to have a civil military leader, a king, and then you're going to have a priest who's in charge of the religious side of things. We saw through the book of Judges, there were 12 judges. That was how God had set things up to rule. Eli and Samuel were the last two judges. They're here in the book of Samuel. And we see with Samuel as the judge, the leaders of Israel come to him and say, we're sick of this system. We don't want to do this anymore. We want to have a king like everybody else. Um, they decided that they wanted, were not happy um, doing it the way God had set up because Israel was supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be different. They weren't supposed to be like the rest of the nations. They were God's chosen people, but they decided they didn't want to live that way no more. So God said, okay. In 1 Samuel 8, 7, he, God tells Samuel, uh, it's not you that they've rejected, it's me. So when you do one of those things to God, you kind of got to be careful what you ask for because you may just get it in uh, more quantity than you really wanted to. So we're told that they give them the king that they want. 1 Samuel 9 to Saul is who uh, Samuel goes to anoint as king. Saul is about a head taller than anybody else in Israel, is what the, the scripture says. He is more handsome than anybody else in the nation of Israel. And oh, by the way, he's very rich. He comes from a rich farm family. So you got tall, dark, handsome, and rich. Kind of who you would naturally want to pick for your king, right? It says that he was supposed to be 
the champion that would go lead them all out into battle. But what we find is underneath this really handsome exterior are a lot of character flaws that quickly begin to come to the surface after he's put in as king. He's a very insecure individual. At first, that kind of seems kind of cute and quaint because he seems humble. He's really just insecure, and when he is placed in kingship, paranoia starts to come to the fore, and he has a lot of irrational, rash decisions that come forth. He follows God when it suits him, but he cuts corners to go his own way when it doesn't. He likes to prestige of position, but he is reluctant to actually lead. So with Saul comes Jonathan. Jonathan is his oldest son. So when King when Saul becomes crowned as king, Jonathan is like a young boy. And they didn't have a monarchy in Israel before, so they just kind of making this stuff up as they go. Um, Jonathan then becomes the crown prince, like Prince Charles, for those who were watching the stuff from England here not that long ago. He's the dude designated to become king when King Saul is out of the picture. And so he's the most eligible bachelor um, in Israel. Uh, we find that he is an effective, popular leader, and as we kind of walk more through the story, we're going to find out that him and David become really good friends in the course of what their interactions are coming forward. So as the oldest son, it's a family affair when you don't really know a whole lot of people and you don't know who to trust. So Saul's in charge of half the army and his son Jonathan is in charge of the other half. It's a whopping 3,000 total. 2,000 go with Saul and 1,000 go with Jonathan. They had been promised from 1 Samuel 9.15 that God was going to deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. Um, and that's this first point that I'm going to try to make from this, is that God desires for us to respond in faith to his promises. So Saul had the biggest section of troops. David had a smaller one. Saul is kind of scared. He's kind of stalling. He doesn't, he's kind of hemming and hauling, waiting for God to move. Jonathan steps out, his little thousand-man force goes and attacks a garrison of Philistines and defeats them. And that causes the Israelites to mobilize all of their fighting men. The Philistines mobilize all of their fighting men. They are said to number as the sands of the seashore. And so the plan seems to be coming together. We're making this epic battle. God's going to deliver. But that's about the time the wheels start to come off the bus with Saul. He hadn't been king very long. Samuel tells Saul, wait seven days. I will come to you. I will offer next sacrifice. I will bless this army. And then you can go out and win in the name of God. Well, the men started getting a little rowdy. Saul got very uncomfortable. So he decided... He was going to make the animal sacrifice himself, which is a direct violation of God's law. He intrudes upon the office of the priest. And about the time he gets done is right when Samuel shows up. 
And what Samuel tells Saul is, you've done a foolish thing, Samuel. Said you have not kept the command of the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So you have Jonathan hearing all of this as the crown prince, and now direct word from God is, you're not going to become king because I'm going to strip this away from your family. How would we react in that kind of situation is the question I would ask. We see that coming out of this, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, the hidden caves and thickets among the rocks and the pits and in the cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They went AWOL. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. So the champion that they had wanted to install as their king to lead them Fearlessly into battle is cowering in a cave with all of his soldiers. But this is what Jonathan did. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So we talk about the story of David and Goliath, this young man that goes out to meet this giant. Um, everybody else is scared to fight him. Um, David defeats the giant. That kind of rallies the Israelites, and they go and have a great victory. Well, before that occurs, which we'll see here in uh, 1 Samuel 17, all the way back here in 1 Samuel 14, we have another young man who steps out in faith, that goes and does something at his own personal peril um, against the Philistines. So there's a cliff face on either side, a very tiny little ravine thing. He and his armor bearer, it's slippery, it's jagged rocks. They crawl up hand over hand. I don't know how tall the cliff was, but there was a garrison at the top of it. And it wasn't like they were surprising them in the middle of the night. They went during the day, and all these Philistines are looking over the cliff, heckling him, going, come on up here and we'll give you the business kind of thing. But undaunted, he climbs up there, and single-handedly, he kills 20 of them. The rest of them all run off in fear. God honors this small step of faith that he did, and he sends an earthquake, which causes a panic amongst all the Philistines. They start killing each other. The Israelites see that, so they attack, and it's a huge victory for the Israelites that was kicked off just by that one small little step of faith from Jonathan. Yet Jonathan still knows he's not destined to become king, but he still steps out in faith for that. There's another incident pretty shortly thereafter, and now when the, the wheels just completely come off the bus with what Saul is doing. Um, in 1 Samuel 15, he is told to attack the Amalekites. 
Um, they had attacked the Israelites when they had left Egypt as soon as they got across the Red Sea. And so the Lord is going to bring judgment on this nation because they've continued in uh, rebellion against him. So he is told to destroy everything. Don't bring anything back, kill everybody and everything, and just destroy it. This time Saul does attack, but he decides some of that livestock was just too much to resist, and he brings back the best stuff for himself. God sends Samuel to tell Saul now that he has completely rejected him as king. So in 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed as the next king. This is kind of the familiar parts of the story you've probably heard. 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath comes about. That should have been Saul out there as the champion of Israel that was head and shoulders above everybody else. But again, he was hiding in fear while the young shepherd boy, David, went out to do the fighting. And that's where we see what we come from this is God desires us to yield to our own will, not our own. Saul yielded to his own will. He wanted to keep the valuable stuff. We see from Jonathan's example that Jonathan was a servant of the, the Most High God and wanted to do what he wanted to do. So after the David and Goliath, Jonathan and David meet, and it says Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So... Jonathan is probably bigger in stature, just presuming because his dad was so much bigger. Um, he's very popular. He was athletic. He was a warrior. Um, I kind of look at him as kind of, he was the football co-captain middle linebacker. David, who's also young, athletic, a good leader, a warrior, is more like the quarterback co-captain of the football team. And these two are just, they're like two peas in a pod. They're like a, the same side of a coin. Um, they are BFFs forever, um, kind of coming out of this thing because they're pretty much spitting image of each other. And we see here that what Jonathan does basically is he gives him his position. All of these things are the symbols that he has as the crown prince that he surrenders to David, upon learning that your kingdom is not going to happen and this other guy is going to usurp you, many of us might become envious and jealous, but that's not what Jonathan did. He actually did quite the opposite. So David is quickly becomes more popular than Saul. Saul is getting really jealous. Pretty much the rest of 1 Samuel is just the accounts of Saul chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him. And David is escaping. Um, Saul is trying to get Jonathan to step up and kind of take things into his own hands. Saul told his son Jonathan and the attendants to kill David. 
But David had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, Saul gets really angry at Jonathan. He's like, as long as that guy's living, you're never going to become king. And Jonathan said he was okay with that. Jonathan goes out to warn David to save his life. He said to David, go in peace, for we've sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between my descendants and your descendants forever. We can see that he also goes out to encourage him because for a time he's feeling very defeated. And Jonathan tells David to not be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this, and the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. So back to, was God unfair to Jonathan? Again, was God equal? No. Did Jonathan do anything wrong? Not that scripture kind of shows us. His father made a lot of evil, sinful choices. Jonathan only showed love for God. He stepped out in faith for God. However, he knew it really wasn't his kingdom to inherit. It was God's kingdom. And God, in his sovereignty, had chosen David over Jonathan to be king and to carry on the line through the Messiah, Jesus. He didn't resent it. He actually embraced this role and accepted what God had given him. In fact, he actually facilitated David's rise to power. So when I look at these two really were bonded because they were really of one heart and mind and that the supreme goal of both of their lives was to glorify God. They really lived out this passage, especially in the case of Jonathan from Philippians 2 that we just finished up here, series previous to this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest but each of you to the interest of others. In Matthew 22, when asked the greatest commandment, Jesus had said, love, love God first. The second, which is equally important, is love your neighbor as yourself. And I see Jonathan living that out, that Christ had called the two most important commandments. The last verse that we hear from Jonathan is here in 1 Samuel 31. Saul had led the army out to attack the Philistines. They weren't in the will of God. God allowed the Philistines to have victory over them. And we see here the Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. They killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua. It's Jonathan and his next two oldest brothers. Saul is mortally wounded. He will fall on his sword here in the, the, the verses to follow this section. 
But this is kind of the, uh, the sad end of where Jonathan's story stops. Jonathan had been stuck at a pretty difficult spot. You know, the, he, he knew the, the commandments to honor your father and your mother, so he's trying to honor his father, although he doesn't agree with a lot of his sinful choices. He still accompanies him into battle here. He's trying to get between him and David, whom he loves and whom he knows is God's will to take his place. I believe God, in his grace, removed Jonathan to facilitate David's rise to power. Jonathan was a very popular guy with the army. Um, it probably would have muddled any ascension that was happening with David. As we learn later on in 2 Samuel that Abner, who was Saul's cousin and was the leader of the army, he had, there was one other remaining son, the youngest, Ishbosheth, that was very weak. Um, Abner propped him up as kind of the leader and he took over Israel and David was made king over Judah. There was a couple years of kind of fighting until uh, Ishbosheth is assassinated. He was a very weak ruler and as soon as he was out of the picture, David quickly becomes king over a united nation of Israel. But it brings me back to one of my original point about God calls us to be faithful to our particular unique path that he has set aside for each of us. In Matthew 6, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not mine. Job 13, 15 says that Job says, even though he slay me, still I will trust him. Hebrews 5, 8, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. So the story of Jonathan from the story of old in line with those anonymous ones at the end of Hebrews 11 doesn't necessarily end in a satisfying, fair way like we would like to kind of see it all wrapped up in a neat bow. He was a humble, loyal, loving, eager to serve God. He gave up his own personal power, his position for a friend because he knew that was God's will and he did not stand in the way of that. In fact, he actually facilitated that. The relationship between Jonathan and David I think should give us pause what are our relationships in this body of Christ compared to that are we committed to bringing God glory and forsaking our own do we rejoice with others when we see that God is blessing them over us do we come alongside and encourage others when they are facing opposition. Kind of next steps. First off, I would encourage you to start your faith journey by accepting Jesus as your Savior. You don't have a unique walk with Christ to fulfill until you actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ first. Second of all, I'm not sure what small faith, step of faith God may be calling you to take today. It may be just coming down the aisle and uh, 
laying something down at the altar. But I would encourage you, whatever small faith that step that is, to take that small step and just watch God kind of unlock the dam on his promises for your life. And the last step, yield to God's will in all areas of your life. If there's something in your life that you're still not saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, I encourage you today to take that step of faith. If you would, bow your heads with me. If that's you today, if that's uh, that first step there, accepting Jesus as your Savior. It's really pretty simple. The Bible is very simple. Saying that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's just acknowledging, and you can just say a prayer in your heart. It doesn't even have to be out loud. Of, I've, I've, I'm a sinner. I've done something wrong. The Bible tells me that separates me from God. The Bible tells us that uh, Jesus came, died, lived a perfect life. He died in our place. If we ask him to come into our heart to be our Lord and Savior, if we believe that he was buried and rose again the third day and is living in eternity in heaven, um, the Bible says if you confess through the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's really that simple. So if that is the, the prayer of your heart today, if you wouldn't mind, would you just raise your hand so I can see that? I would just like to pray for you. see one hand. Thank you. Welcome to the kingdom of heaven. For the rest of us in here, um, I don't know what business God is, is working in your heart. I just encourage you today to take that small little step of faith. Um, Heavenly Father, we just we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. I just pray that you'll continue to work in our hearts and minds. Uh, Lord, that we would just be faithful to what you've called us to do, not compare ourselves to others. I pray we would be a community of Jonathans, Lord, that look out for the benefit of others above ourselves. And uh, we'll just give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.